Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allow us to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm seeing on my screen Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello. Hello, fellow hosts of this podcast. Good to see everyone. So lovely to see you both upon my screen. Evan, who is uh, upon the show this week? This week on the show is Udigit Bhattacharjee. I've known uh, Udigit for a long time. First as a science writer, uh, which he still does today for National Geographic. You'll find stories of his there. And then really as someone who has written a bunch of stories that I was jealous of on topics that I am interested in, like deception, spies, organized crime, and scams. And he has a new uh, podcast out, which is called Scam Likely, which traces this massive phone scam back to its roots. He actually wrote a New York Times Magazine story about similar type scams a couple of years ago. He's turned that into a very, very deep dive into this scam. It has crazy characters in it. He traces it all over the world. It's amazing. The whole thing is out right now. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, everything, including his career and how he transitioned from science writing into other types of writing and then to podcasting. And as always with you, Digit, I really enjoyed talking to him. You can't see my hands because they're off screen, but uh, while we were doing this introduction, I subscribed to this podcast purely on the uh, the uh, introduction you just gave to it. It's not hard to get me to subscribe to a podcast about scams, as you might uh, uh, guess if you listen to me interviewing Evan about his scam podcasts, but uh, all scam podcast hosts are always welcome on this show. I was going to say, uh, you two, uh, as everyone knows, love a good scam podcast. I love a good podcast title. I'm just going to say, Scam Likely. Good title. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Udigit Bhattacharjee. Udigit, welcome to the Longform Podcast, and it's good to see you. 
Hey, great to see you, Evan. Uh, been a big fan of your show. Um, what a great podcast this is. Thanks, man. And we have known each other a little bit in different ways over the years. And we were just talking about beforehand how we have like really aligned, like almost incredibly aligned set of interests. And first, I've just listened to your show. In the show, and actually in a Times Magazine story that you had a couple years ago, you talk about traveling to India to investigate scams. And you mention in both places, I noticed, that it took you back to when you were first a crime reporter in India. And I wanted to kind of start there. So can you first tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like and how you got into becoming a crime reporter when you lived in India? So I grew up in this, uh, I was born in Kolkata, which used to be known as Calcutta in West Bengal, India. But my father worked for the central government, the federal government of India, as a geologist. And so he was always being sent around to different parts of the country to conduct these explorations. And we ended up moving with my dad to a city called Jaipur, uh, which is sort of fairly well known because it's very popular uh, among tourists. And then I went to Mumbai to get an engineering degree. I, I studied chemical engineering at one of these Indian institutes of technology, not because I was really interested in engineering, but because a lot of, you know, bright kids from my school had followed that path. And so I didn't know any better. And I ended up going and getting this degree in engineering, but I really, really hated it. Uh, and so after I graduated, you know, I had some writing interest. I'd been the editor of my school magazine in Jaipur. Uh, I'd written for the local newspaper. So I knew that I had this interest in writing. And so I became a journalist in Kolkata uh, back in the mid-90s. And the first newspaper that I worked at was a place called The Asian Age. It's a paper that still exists. And it was founded by one of India's foremost journalists, a guy named M.J. Akbar, who's now a member of India's parliament. And I ended up sort of becoming a reporter overnight, which I think is the case for most reporters. I mean, it's not like you really go through a training process. But that's where, in Kolkata, for about two years, I was covering cops, courts, uh, politics, pretty much everything. And that's where I discovered this passion for crime reporting. Kolkata is a is a huge city. It's a it's a huge metropolis. So every day there are murders and robberies and you know you name it. And so I was covering you know every day in the evening I'd go for the police briefing and then try and develop sources among the police officers and then try and develop leads that came out of those briefings. So I covered murders, you know, but a story that I really kind of dug into was a story about kidney trafficking because Kolkata had become a hub for the organ trade just because there were so many homeless, destitute people around. Uh, and I remember uh, sort of writing a series about poor people being lured or threatened uh, into selling their kidneys often just for a pittance. Uh, so that was, you know, that was an example. I, there were stories about kidnapping, you name it. And so what, uh, what prompted your, you to first move to the States? 
Well, so after I spent two years at this newspaper, I applied for a job at a rival newspaper called The Telegraph, which was just better established and, you know, could pay more money and that sort of thing. And that newspaper was one of the few newspapers in India that had a science and technology section. And because I'd now spent like two years reporting, I realized that I needed to develop some kind of expertise if I wanted to advance my career. And it seemed logical because of my engineering degree to, uh, to go into science writing. So that's how I switched papers, uh, went to the Telegraph, and started working for the science section there. And while I was working there for the science section, I started to write these long features, you know, sort of half-narrative, half-explanatory features about various uh, scientific topics. And often, I wasn't covering just Indian science, but I was covering sort of global science. I was looking at papers that were appearing in Science or Nature, and it wasn't uh, the case that all of these papers were written by Indian scientists. You know, there were scientists from all over the world. And, and I'd end up interviewing them by email, by phone. And while I was doing this, I developed an interest in the New York Times science section and in Discover magazine. And gradually, I realized that if I really wanted to pursue science writing in earnest, I needed to be in a country where a lot of cutting-edge science was happening, which would allow me, you know, the, the necessary material to actually have a fulfilling career. It's not that Indian science was, was lacking, but it certainly wasn't as exciting, and there weren't, you know, as many breakthroughs to report week in, week out. Also, because I was reading, you know, Natalie Angier, George Johnson, uh, Gina Colada. I was reading all these science writers who were big names at the time. This We're talking about the 90s. You know, I, I really enjoyed reading their pieces, and I started to see that there was this possibility that I could join their ranks, but in order to do that, I had to first get a scholarship and move to the U.S. and you know, make a life here. And so the next few years were spent in trying to achieve that. <laughs> and when you, when you said you're, you were sure you could, you could join their ranks, when, when you came here, did you, did you feel like you had a plan for how you were going to get into, you know, I'm going to follow these steps and then I will end up, because you ended up at Science Magazine, if I recall, for a while. Like, did you say like, I'm going to go one, two, three? Or were you kind of like, I'll show up and I'll, I'll figure it out. Well, um, you know, of course, uh, I was thankfully endowed with uh, more confidence than I perhaps uh, deserved to have at that point. <laughs> you know, so almost naively, uh, I felt like, you know, of course I can do this. I mean, what I knew was that when I was writing stories myself, I knew that they were as clear and as concise and, you know, perhaps as well-written as some of these pieces that I was reading, partly because, you know, I was trying to emulate these writers. So after I came to the U.S., then I kind of realized, well, none of these clips that I have from the Telegraph in Kolkata 
mean shit to <laughs> to to people to to people here. I mean that was true, you know, not to not that they were being uh, being rude, uh, but they certainly just they hadn't heard of the telegraph. They didn't really know that there was science writing going on in India. So it was a it was an uphill battle just to get their attention. You know, but there were lots of people who were willing to read some of my clips. And so I ended up getting a helping hand from people at the Ohio State University where I'd come to do my master's. And a few months after I got to the U.S., I came to attend a meeting of the National Association of Science Writers. Um, and I ended up meeting with Cornelia Dean, who was uh, the editor of the science section at the New York Times. And I guess, you know, I guess just there was there was so much hunger <laughs> in the way that I spoke. You know, it it left an impression. I mean, it, I, I now that I look back, I can I I realize that I must have embarrassed myself, you know, by being so eager, because you know that kind of eagerness is it, it can be off-putting. But I think I I I gradually kind of earned the trust of a of a few of these people. I ended up getting an internship at Time Magazine, which was a big break for me because, you know, I had a calling card that was more easily recognizable by people at the New York Times. So while I was at Time, I was like, great, now I'm going to write these one-page pieces in Time Magazine. What a big deal this is. And I was staying at a dorm at Columbia University and, you know, taking the metro every day the subway to the Time Life building, dreaming that, you know, one day I'd get a job at Time magazine because, I, you know, I, I, was, I was there. You know, I could impress everybody. But things didn't quite work out that way because, you know, because interns aren't expected to write. They're mostly just fact checkers, researchers, you know, coffee getters. But it was a good experience, and because I was in New York, I was able to go meet with a couple of people at the New York Times, and then I realized that what I had to do was pitch freelance stories to them so that maybe I could start getting some clips from the Times, and that started to happen very soon. Then I felt like, okay, I guess now I can get a, get a real job at a good newspaper in the U.S., to work as a science writer, but again, that wasn't so easy to do, uh, just because there was a lot of competition. And even though I was doing well, there were lots of other people with, you know, with more experience, more clips, uh, people who had done similar internships while they were undergraduates. You know, I was a grad student at the time, so I ended up doing more freelance writing in the early two thousands writing for the technology uh, section of the Times, you know, the section called Circuits, and also writing for Science Times, you know, writing occasionally like, like one or two pieces for Science Magazine, a couple of pieces for Technology Review. I did manage to write a big piece for Time. So with, with all of those things, my confidence, which had been right-sized <laughs> by, by, the, by, the, by the early hurdles, started to gradually kind of build back up into what I thought was, you know, in the right proportion to my experience and my my talent. And 
how hard was it for you to kind of scrape together a living in that time, just mostly freelancing? Well, so I was I was very lucky actually because one of my mentors at Ohio State was a man named Earl Holland, who's kind of a veteran university science communicator. And Earl Holland very kindly offered me a job at Ohio State after I graduated to work as a university science writer. I mean, these are these are fabulous jobs, actually, <laughs> because you get to write about research. They're essentially press releases that are being put out to the press, but these are kind of one-source stories, one-source explanatory stories about a new research paper that somebody at Ohio State has come out with or, you know, a new experiment being launched at Ohio State, that sort of thing. So that's what I was doing to earn my benefits and a salary. Um, but I was using a lot of my creative time um, outside of this job to write freelance pieces. Uh, the idea was to try and get enough clips and get enough of a reputation that I could actually be a good candidate for a science writing position at a place like the Journal or the New York Times. So, so yes, yeah, so that, that's what I was doing. When, when did you leave that job? Was there a point where you said, okay, I can, now I can make this transition. I've, I've moved along far enough. Yeah. You know, after I'd been in that job for about a year or less than a year, in fact, uh, this was mid 2002, I started to, um, entertain the idea of writing a book about time perception. You know, this like a, like a subject that I'd gotten really interested in how the mind makes, you know, keeps track of time on the, on the seconds to minutes scale. And so I thought, one way to write this book would be maybe to get a PhD uh, in the history and philosophy of science and kind of make this book topic my dissertation area. I ended up getting a fellowship from the PhD program in the history of science at the University of Chicago. And I moved there. I'd just gotten married to a journalist that I met in my Ohio State program. So we ended up getting married and moving to Chicago where I was going to do this PhD. But as soon as I, you know, I started attending the seminars where some of the, you know, the grad students who were ahead of me would discuss their projects and ideas. I mean, it was clear to me that if I stayed among them, I would forget the one thing that I knew to do, which was to write. <laughs> I was like, this is not, this does not make sense. And if I want to write this book, I should just go and write it instead of pretending like I'm going to be working on this book while getting a PhD. I mean, no, no knock on this PhD program, but I think it was just a little too esoteric for my, you know, crime reporting, <laughs> uh, journalistic, bent of mind. That's when I started applying for a job at a magazine somewhere just to try and kind of return to journalism. And fortunately, I, I got a job at Science. Um, so that's what brought me to Washington, D.C. And then at Science is really where I kind of started doing science writing even more seriously than I had been earlier. 
And so I spent several years covering papers, covering conferences, neuroscience, astronomy, science policy. So I kind of became a jack of all trades at science with a focus on a few areas like astronomy and space science. It's funny you say that because one of the things when I look at your work and I've read your work for a really long time is you cover such a wide range of areas and I feel like there was also a career path for you where you only were doing science writing. And to this day, we would be talking only about your science writing. So I'm interested when you first dipped back into that crime reporting impulse. Like, what was the first time you were like, actually, I still have this other thing in me that I want to do? Yeah. So one was that I would often read the pages of science or nature. And even though I would find interesting stories there, I rarely felt like reading them from start to finish. You know, I would read the first couple of graphs, three graphs, and then I'd be like, okay, that's all I need to know. And so I felt like if I was feeling like that as a writer at science, then surely readers were also feeling like that. By then, I'd also become a fan of The New Yorker and the New York Times Magazine. And I was reading the stories there, and I was starting to read a lot of narrative nonfiction. And I was just surprised, you know, that I would take these magazines into the loo and then sit on the john for like a long time to finish the story. And I was like, why am I not writing stories that would compel readers in the same way? So I started to kind of study that, you know, just to turn that over in my head. And it wasn't a mystery. It was just that, you know, the tricks of narrative nonfiction were not really known to me at that point because I'd been so busy, focused on trying to get a science writing job, you know, come to the U.S. and all of that. So I kind of woke up to this whole area of narrative nonfiction by late 2000, uh, by the late 2000s, 2007, 2008. And it, it, it felt like, uh, you know, holding material back, you know, creating suspense, developing character, finding a narrative arc uh, within the material that you have. Like, those were things that I needed to train myself in. So I wanted to write those stories. And that's when I started casting about looking for topics where I could deliver that kind of narrative. And at first, the low-hanging fruit was the narrative profile, you know, of scientists who had overcome adversity and had achieved something, uh, you know, monumental or, uh, you know, basically stories about a character and following a character through a time sequence uh, that tells a story. So that was the easy thing. But then I got greedier, and that's what brought me back to crime, because I knew that Another low-hanging fruit was stories about fascinating crimes where, you know, you have a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end that are really clear. And so these are stories that cannot be drab. You know, they, they can't be dull just because of all the things that happen in them. You know, in some ways, one could argue that this was like a cop-out, you know, because there's inherently intrigue, there's inherently a point 
in the story where you don't know what's about to happen. And then finally, when the crime is solved, um, you know, everything is made clear to you and there's kind of that satisfaction of, of understanding, which is not that different from, you know, understanding how a neutron star works or how a scientist was able to clone an animal or something. So, uh, so that's what led me to try and find stories uh, that were at the intersection of science and crime. And I started to find such stories and write them. You know, you say it's low-hanging fruit, and I know what you mean, because I feel that too, you know, the stories that have this sort of natural way of telling them. But then there's another question there, which is, what to you causes you to start making the calls that will turn this into a bigger narrative feature? Like, what is it that triggers, okay, this is actually one I'm going to start pulling on? Right. I mean, one of the things I'm looking for, I'm looking for a few things. I'm looking for character. You know, I'm looking for somebody who has an interesting personality and, you know, kind of a colorful, you know, life journey that can be exploited for storytelling purposes. But I'm also looking for complexity in the plot itself. You know, like if there's a crime that's happened, you know, and if these are bank robbers that were trying to bust open a vault, and if they just busted it open, got the cash, and ran, I'm less interested in it than if they tried to bust it open with a saw, and then the saw broke, and, you know, one of the guys lost a finger and had to rush to the emergency and came back, and they returned with not just a saw, but, you know, a power blade. And this time they they got lucky. And guess what? As they were leaving, you know, they forgot to take, you know, half the cash or something. I'm just, I'm making it up. But it's like, whenever I see that there's complexity, it feels like, I, like I want a crumpled piece of paper you know, where there are enough ridges and valleys and lines for me to be able to navigate. And they have to be authentic. And then, of course, the best stories among them will have like a, like surprise and intrigue and things that are completely unexpected happen somewhere along the way uh, so that it, but but it's it's hard to anticipate all of that. Like you still have to have a little bit of faith that because life itself is complex, and that, you know, things rarely happen in a linear and simple way uh, in, in, in the real world, that hopefully if you found the right story with all the right elements, then as you report it, you're going to find all of those unexpected peaks and valleys that your readers or listeners will, will delight in. Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You are able to get federal agents to talk about cases. You've got people who normally, they just don't like to talk about these things in that level of depth and detail. And you also, you had a big New Yorker piece where you talked to one of the actual informants. I'm obsessed with these people, like paid informants who goes around helping them set up their sting operations overseas. Also, in some stories, you've really gotten the 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 perpetrators in prison and had like correspondence with them. I'm interested in your approaches. Like what what's your what's your pitch when you're trying to get those kind of folks to talk? Yeah, I mean. Over time, I've realized that I have a knack for this, um, and I think what I what I bring to the table is just genuine curiosity and, to some degree, compassion. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I really feel like when I when I talk to investigators or scientists, I I feel like like they've they've spent so much time delving into this one thing, uh, and I can kind of feel that emotionally, like in my heart, I can feel like, my God, this is just amazing that you did all this. Uh, and I think that th that they are able to recognize that that I can I can understand that aspect of them, or at least that I'm trying to. You know, I might not always, but at least that I'm trying to, and that I don't mind coming back again and again. I think that is the the biggest secret weapon of long form is coming back again and again. Because once your source, your subject, realizes 
that you will come back as many times as necessary to understand their story, you're having a whole other conversation. You know, they, they are going to drop their guard, they're going to develop trust, and then they're going to start to really, like they become invested in your success as a storyteller because you're telling their story. I guess the same thing applies to perpetrators of crime or the bad guys, you know, who are not going to come off looking good in the piece, no matter what they say, uh, just because of what they did. And I think that giving them a genuine platform, in a sense, to explain why they did what they did, and not in sort of a pat way, you know, where you just they just tell you like, well, I just needed the money, so I did it, you know, but that you're looking for something deeper than that. And it becomes like a, almost like a self-exploration journey. Like as they're talking, they, they realize that they're starting to understand themselves, their own family background, their own journey better than they did before. You know, I think it's, it, it's not like a, like a secret, like some great expertise, but it's just genuine desire to like have a really good story in the end, but but a genuine desire to kind of you know immerse myself in their world uh, to the extent possible. And have you felt the more you've been in these worlds because you've been in both sort of like international crime worlds, cybercrime scamming, but also a lot of spy stories or at least a couple big ones that I can think of, the big story in GQ about the father-son spy pairing, and then your book about spying. Like, when you're immersing yourself in these worlds and talking to these people, do you feel like, I love existing in this world? Like, I, I love the ins and outs of spying and crime and organized crime? Or do you reach a point where you're like, I'm really happy that I can just go back to my ordinary life, which doesn't involve any of this? Like, how much do you feel like drawn to the worlds that you're, you keep entering over and over? I really want to enter the minds of these people. And so, you know, like grisly crimes don't really interest me that much, you know, where somebody like butchers somebody else or, you know, murders. Like, to me, sort of the, the, the mental landscape and how people are navigating that, their cognitive and emotional kind of territory, that is what interests me. So, for example, when I spent over two years getting to know uh, Spiros Enotiatis, you know, this, this guy uh, who helps the DEA and other law enforcement agencies run sting operations, by playing the role of a mafia boss or a, or a drug kingpin or, or what have you, basically working like an undercover agent. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really want to go in and start planning an operation with him, you know, but I just wanted to be a fly on the wall uh, for everything that was going on because every little bit of action, every little bit of manipulation to me seemed to kind of lift the veil ever so slightly on the human condition and and the complex mind that the human mind is where it's able to you know do all these things and then plan ahead and so i i'm just fascinated by the by the internal worlds of these people more than 
you know, the external action. The external action, of course, is the only way that we get to kind of look into their minds. So, so, so it's helpful in that sense. But, I, but, I, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not drawn into their worlds. I'm drawn into their minds, I guess. And do you find that they stay in your life at all after the story? Or every single one of them. Yeah, <laughs> every single one of them. They become they become a part of my life, and you know it's it's almost like I I don't know why, but it's it's just you know it's like it now it's a connection that has been established that will remain because I I feel like you know like my my empathy my concern my interest in them you know. It, it 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 all is genuine like and it doesn't just end after the story appears and i guess i don't know why but i i maybe i just i just feel like i'm i'm cheating on them if i were to just like cast them away you know after after the piece is written because i i do get you know i i do get very sympathetic and and friendly uh with these subjects and you know you can find some of them on my facebook friend list <laughs> because because i i end up you know uh, friending them i mean and and this is even with people who are somewhat unhappy about you know how the piece came out or you know they they think that that i maybe i should have spent more time talking about a certain aspect of their lives versus not they 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 can still see that I really meant it when I said, "Wow, that's fascinating." You know that it wasn't just an expression in the middle of an interview to keep them keep them talking. And so let's talk about scams a little bit because I feel like this instinct that you had that prompted I think the Times Magazine story and then also this this show you have out is like to take something that all of us receive every day, many times a day nowadays. And then just be like, where does that come from? Like, why is that happening? And do you remember what was there a particular scam call that prompted you to say, you know what? I really want to, <laughs> I want to know who this person is on the other end of the line. Like, where are they physically sitting? It started quite a few years ago, actually, because as you know, these scam calls, you know, are now almost ten years old at this point. Like many of us have been getting these calls for for years, so. I think maybe around 2013, 2014, I noticed an uptick of calls on my phone from uh, voices that sounded Indian or Pakistani, you know, from somewhere in South Asia. And these would be calls, you know, asking me if I'd paid my taxes or, in fact, telling me that, that I owed back taxes calls claiming to be from the Social Security Administration, calls offering loans. And, you know, of course, I, I, I sort of would immediately smell a rat just from the way that the questions were asked. And also because I, I couldn't believe that the IRS would ever come after uh, a, a, uh, a poorly paid freelance writer. <laughs> but, uh, but really, it was evident to me as it would be evident to many people that these were these were scam calls so because of the volume of these calls i started to imagine that there must be armies of these people in india sitting up all night at a call center and calling uh americans and and offering these services uh, and these ruses to steal their money 
I, I was always tempted to kind of have fun with them, you know, lead them on. And often these conversations would end with me practicing all the, the Hindi curse words that I had left behind in the old country. <laughs> It was it was funny to kind of just observe their reactions to all of this foul-mouthed cursing because some of them would, like, pretend like they couldn't understand me and they'd continue in English. But finally, you know, after I'd provoked them enough with some really, really bad curses, <laughs> they would react and lash out and say, you know, and curse back at me. And I'd be like, ha, got you. And at one point, I, I started to to really become interested in who these people were. Uh, and I tried to coax them into talking to me and telling me where they were, what they were doing, uh, how they had gotten into this. But, you know, that was when they would start cursing at me <laughs> because they, they weren't really going to entertain my request. So that's how the interest began, you know, 2016, 17, and then I was like, I, I, I would love to write about this. And I, I ended up connecting with this guy named Jim Browning, which isn't his real name, because I went on YouTube and I saw all these videos that Jim Browning had done in which he had exposed uh, these call center scams and managed to hack back into the devices of the scammers uh, and then eavesdrop on, on their calls. And so Jim and I kind of struck up like a, a friendship, I guess, uh, in sometime in 2018. And every time he'd get a live one, like he would have managed to hack back in and then he would call me and then he would let me like listen in to what these scammers were doing, who they were calling. And then Jim would ask me like, like, where do you think they are? And Jim had ways of finding out himself because he's able to geolocate, um, you know, using the IP addresses, um, you know, within, you know, within a radius of 15, 20 meters, 100 meters, where these call centers were located. So it was just amusing to me to then hear some of these scammers talking amongst themselves in Hindi often. And from the way that they would talk to one another, I could kind of decipher what part of the country they were from originally based on their accents. So I felt like I had glimpsed into this world and, and, and that I could go further into it. And you, I mean, you then went really far into it. And I'm interested in how you, how you found the case that was big enough to sustain the narrative. You know, I, of course, for this New York Times magazine piece, I didn't really hang it on a case, but instead I hung that story on my pursuit of trying to meet with a scammer and interview him. So that was the narrative, and Jim Browning was one of the characters in the story. But while I was working on that piece, I'd already heard about this massive case that had happened in the U.S., that had become public first in 2016. And that was Operation Outsource, in which more than 60 people had been indicted. And the roots of the scam were in Mumbai and in Ahmedabad. And so I had kind of heard about this. And so in 2018 and 2019, 
I'd gone to India to report on other projects, but I had taken time out to go and uh, talk to police officers that had been trying to prosecute some of these scammers in India. So I wasn't, I was sort of hazy on the American investigation, even though there were, you know, there there was an indictment out and I'd seen that, uh, but I didn't know any of the American investigators. And, and I knew the Indian side of the investigation. And the Indian investigation and the American investigation into the scam, they never linked up. Yeah, there's a great moment in the, I won't spoil it, but there's a great moment in the show about that where they do not come together. <laughs> and that is, that is a point of clear contention. A lot of like dead air response to you asking questions. It's a great moment. Exactly. And it's, it's a shame. And I, I hope listeners will, uh, will enjoy that moment. Uh, but, but yeah, so, you know, fast forward to 2021, the story that I wrote for the New York Times came out in January of 2021. And, and I got a call from Matt Scher, you know, who's a friend and who's one of the founders of Campside Media. He had read my New York Times magazine story, but he was actually friends with one of the agents that worked on Operation Outsource. And so he told me, like, hey, are you interested in this in this story? And and maybe this could be a show. So it was like a happy, uh, a happy coincidence that. Uh, that he mentioned to me a story whose Indian end I had begun reporting a year prior. That's a real long game, too. You're talking about stuff, you started looking into it like 2015, 2016, then you start reporting it, trying to report it out in different ways, and then you're talking about doing basically spec reporting on the side. So that makes me wonder, how many stories do you have where you've done like a little bit of spec reporting that are kind of sitting around waiting for, you know, four years from now, something to prompt it to turn into. Way, way too many. You know, and when I was when I was younger, you know, like 10 years ago, when I was really just starting to get into serious narrative uh, nonfiction writing, I would jump at, at every lead, I, you know. That, and I remember even having a conversation with you at some point when, when uh, I was pitching stories to The Atavist, you know, just saying like, and what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Uh, and and of course, you know, most of those stories will never see the light of day because, uh, but I had way more energy, you know, 10 years ago and way more enthusiasm. Now that I've been through the cycle on all of these stories that have actually gotten published and also uh, stories that have not gotten published, I have less energy to just keep going, you know, without uh, the promise of a reward, <laughs> you know, without the promise that that it will ultimately pan out. And so I kind of missed those days when I was so naive that I'd be like, oh, let me just call this guy and let me see what he says. And then I'll just file that away. And that's, you know, no big deal. That was just like three hours of my time. And now I'm like, Am I? Do I really want to do this? <laughs> Can I really afford to do this? Who's going to publish it? Also, what if I? What if like three or four pitches succeed simultaneously? 
who's going to actually write those stories within the next six to eight months? It's not going to happen. So, you know, you start kind of winnowing down the possibilities uh, from uh, from early on. With the scam story, though, you know, it was, you know, because I was just having a good time, you know, talking to these scammers on the phone and, you know, it, it was just entertainment for me, not even work. Gradually, it kind of developed into like, who are these people? And then I was like, wait a second, there's dozens of people at a call center sitting there all night taking a midnight sort of dinner break or tea break or snack break and then coming back to their desks and then working all the way till four. And there, I mean, so I, it felt like this was the largest organized crime you know, enterprise that the world had ever seen, like like the most official type of criminal enterprise. And that to me was mind-boggling, you know? And that said so much about the globalized world that we're in. You know, it, it was like a story of our time that you could have these armies of people, um, you know, feeling not the slightest bit guilty about having an official job that was dedicated to fleecing and stealing from American victims or European victims, and increasingly Indian victims too, because now Indians are also, you know, frequently the target of these scams. When you started reporting and writing for the podcast, what did you run up against? Was it challenging? Did it seem smooth to you to do it in an audio form? What were the differences for you? Well, it's quite different. <laughs> you know, I, I had thought, well, of course, you know, I've written all these big pieces, you know, this can't be all that difficult. But I think I had to learn quite a bit. And I'm really glad that the two producers I worked with, uh, Johnny Kaufman and Eric Benson, they're so good at their jobs that, you know, I was able to learn so much just in the first few months. I think for for one thing, what I realized is that the arrow of the narrative has to be much cleaner and really well chiseled for audio. In print, you don't shy away from complexity. You can add commentary as you're going you can have like an explanatory graph. Whereas in audio, it really has to be very crisp because, you know, because it's, a person is going to be listening to it and is not going to be hitting rewind in the way that a reader might glance back at the prior paragraph. So I think that's not a trivial difference. And did you find yourself interviewing differently I absolutely had to, uh, and I'm still learning. It's a work in progress because I feel like your questions have to be crisp. You know, they can be conversational, but you have to know exactly where you're going with the question, and you have to be able to anticipate what your subject might say, at least the nature of what they might say, so that uh, you can you know, you can interject when it's when you should, so that maybe you get some really interesting tape from that exchange. I also felt like 
I needed to simplify my questions a lot more and break them down, you know, and never ask questions like, you know, or, or at least try not to ask questions like, you know, that have a big preamble where I'm just kind of describing things that, that I'm assuming are going to be too tedious for the subject to go over. And it's, it's surprising, like things that we think are tedious, especially like coming from my background as a science journalist. And this comes from like interviewing scientists whose papers I've read. I always feel under pressure to kind of signal to them that I did read the abstract, I read the method section, and I know that you did these experiments. And it's like, you know, you can't be doing that as an audio journalist. You really have to be fairly broad but simple and then kind of progress from one question to the next to the next so that you're kind of providing ample opportunity to the subject to recollect, you know, the experience that they're sharing or or whatever it is. So I, before I let you go, I want to take you back to the topic of the show, because I'm, I am interested to know, you got so deep in this scam, all sides, like a 360 degree view of a phone call that someone received, essentially. And even like, the guys in India who, not to spoil too much of it, but who are inside the call center, they're trying to like turn the tables on their bosses. And when you got to the end of it, do you feel satisfied in understanding these scams? Or do you feel like there's still something beyond that you couldn't quite get to? Well, on one level, I'm, I'm really satisfied because, you know, one of the things that continues to be or has been a big mystery in these scams is how the money is stolen and then taken back to the call center. And I think that we demystify that process in a way that no other work of journalism has done. So I think that that is incredibly satisfying. I also think that the organizational structures behind these scams, the whole ecosystem, I think, has been laid bare at a level of detail that you won't find anywhere else. And this is because of all the time that I spent reporting the New York Times Magazine story and then all the time that I spent reporting this one and the access that I had to law enforcement here in the U.S., law enforcement in India, uh, and also scammers themselves. But I do think that maybe the, the next level deep would be to actually work at a call center like this because there's a lot we don't understand because this is a volume business, actually. It's just about a bunch of people who only need to get paid a small amount of money to sit at a desk and keep making these, these calls over and over again. Like, I understand it theoretically, you know, but I don't understand what it means to be like spending eight hours making these calls, taking these calls, and then at four o'clock in the morning, get one person, manipulate them into going and uh, coughing up whatever, $500 or something, and being like, yay, you know, my work for the night is done. Like, what does that feel like? I mean, at what point does an employee say, this is not working? You know, like, I've been cursed out by, you know, by 25 people in the last three hours. I've had enough of this. I'm going home. <laughs> you 
you know so so i think that there are things like that which i don't understand yet in a in an emotional way but i think i'm quite satisfied with the level of understanding that that the show has brought to the table and so so next season it's going to be you like eight months working at a call center in india <laughs> right exactly yes yes that uh you know I'll, I'll 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 probably be a good scammer i mean if if i really uh got down to it but uh but no maybe <laughs> another uh, in another life That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. My thanks to Udigit for coming on the show. His show, his eight-part podcast, is called Scam Likely. It is the third season of the show Chameleon. You can find it and binge it everywhere you get your podcasts. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. The editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Our intern is Megan Valley. And our partners are Box Media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.